since the 1920s, hit, hit its kind of peak in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and we are now products of it. And what's happened in the sexual revolution is sex was private, it is now public. Sex was fixed, sex is now flexible. Sex used to cause anxiety, sex promotes celebration. Sex used to make people morally suspect, now only Christians care. That's the narrative all over TV, all over Netflix, all over the literature we read, all over social media, and filling the songs that our kids are listening to on Spotify. Sex is the key to good health. Sex is the key to psychological vitality. Sex is the key to intimacy. And if you don't agree with that, well then, you're rejected. 20 years ago, if you were a Christian and you were sharing your view of sex, you would have been called old-fashioned. It's old-fashioned or prudish to just think about heterosexual sex in marriage. Now, that view is seen as dangerous because what someone's sexuality in our world and their sexual fulfillment is core to their identity. So, what is sex in the modern world? Well, firstly, it's just physical. Sex is sold as a bodily urge that is hardwired into all of us. So this afternoon, if you're hungry, you eat a burger. If you're turned on, you have sex. It's just a bodily urge. Secondly, sex is all about self-fulfillment and self-realisation. That is the, 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 the narrative we're sold, which means that you can chase sex to pursue your personal happiness and whatever type of sex to get your authentic self. And there should be no barriers to that. And thirdly, sex is amoral. With contraception, sex has been detached from children. And so who you have sex with and how much sex doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't hurt anyone. So you're free to have as much as you want without guilt or worry. That's what's being taught our children. That's what's being taught our youth. That's what they are discipled by as they watch Netflix. And it is sold as wonderfully liberating and good. Yet there's some issues, aren't there? That narrative struggles to explain Harry Weinstein, who was just following his urges. That view is sold to us in Game of Thrones, where sex is anything but good. The sex in that or whatever modern show you're watching is either cheap and nasty like KFC or it's horribly condoning of sexual violence and rape where we watch it and just accept that's life. Actually, the argument that sex is just a physical urge, it's a total furphy. It is, by nature, deeply emotional. Sex can create great joy, but also can wound very, very deeply. And so is there a better narrative for sex than it's an amoral bodily urge for, for self-fulfillment? Well, the Bible says yes, and God says yes. His design for sex is as old as creation, but it's not old-fashioned. It's countercultural, yet beautiful. And it is restrictive, and it is full of goodness. It is revolutionary for women, 
It's revolutionary for society and for you and me. And so the question we're faced with today is whether we think God's design for sex is a good word for all people. Is it good for those of you who are married? Is it good for those of you who are single? Is it good for those of you who are divorced? Is it good for those of you who are same-sex attracted? Is it good for you if you're dating? Is it good for you wherever you're at? Because if it is a good word, then it's worth listening to. That's the question as we open Song of Songs this morning and we read God's wisdom for good relationships. It's a poetic love song about a couple, a man and a woman, relating really well. And today they embrace sexual intimacy and we get to see God's good design for sex. And so point number one, sex in God's design is beautiful. Sexual intimacy for our lovers, as Ben read, didn't begin with the man desperately trying to satisfy a physical urge. It begins with the man doing an extended wow to his beloved. See it there in verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. How beautiful you are, my darling. How very beautiful. Behind your veil, your eyes are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats streaming down from Mount Gilead. If you were to read those first seven verses, you'd read that he praises her eyes, her her, her teeth, her hair, her lips, her temple, her neck and her breasts. And he uses language understandable for her and totally weird to us. Fellas, it's unlikely to call your wife this afternoon's hair like a flock of goats. Which actually in the time meant it was lush and flowing, but it would not be heard that way this afternoon. Also, we're unlikely to say to our beloved, geez, Dahl, I'm glad you haven't lost any teeth. But back in those days without dentists, that was a positive, that she had all her teeth. To her, his words are very affectionate. And actually, they're abundant. She's not like this. But her, to him, he can say, to me, you're like that. And they're very deliberate. If you read through those seven verses this afternoon, you see little biblical Easter eggs. That point for the man to say, I've been blessed by God by this lady. And he notices seven features. If you were Jewish, you'd all go, oh, yeah, seven. That's perfection for the Jewish. That's the number of God. It's perfect. And to this man, she is perfect. She is the only one in his eyes. She's not like one of Solomon's many wives. She's not an image on a screen. She's absolutely beautiful to him. Now, what we read this morning may or may not be their wedding night. We don't know, actually. The the poetry, actually, as we read Song of Songs, is deliberately vague. But what is not vague is that in the greatest love song ever, sex belongs in a relationship of love. Look at verse 8. Come with me from Lebanon, My bride, come with me. In verses 7 and 8, it's poetry. The woman is not on Mount Canobolus. She is not in a lion's cave. What her lover is doing here is inviting her to leave a place of danger or a place of vulnerability and come to a place of safety with him. That's where sex belongs, in a place of safety. Look at verse 9. 
He offers her his heart, not just his hands. This is so much more than physical. But in verses 10 and 11, it is physical. Their affection is delightful and sensual. It's described with pictures of perfume, of wine, of milk and honey. It's promised land language. And then she speaks. This woman is in control. And she invites him to enjoy her. Look at verse 16. Awaken, north wind, come, south wind, blow on my garden, spread its fragrances of its species, spices. Let my love come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. In 5 verse 1, he enters her, the garden. He explores, he drinks and enjoys. And she is happy. And the friends from the sideline go, yes, this is good. This is God's good design. All right. What's going on here? The Song of Songs is presenting a poetic picture, not a guide. Sex is not always like this. And for many people, sex is the opposite of this. But in God's good design, sex is always good. Its design is never cold. It is not mechanical. And it is never just meeting your physical urge. It is a beautiful thing. It is abundant and safe and expansive and heterosexual and creative and consensual and deeply personal. And so in the context of a loving relationship, sex is beautiful. Outside of a loving relationship, sex is just lust. Lust is ugly. And lust is what sex is sold as on Netflix and Harry Styles. And lust is ugly because lust uses someone as a thing. Marilyn Monroe, she was one of the greatest sex symbols of the 50s. She said this, a sex symbol becomes a thing. I hate being a thing. I've never liked sex. And I don't think I ever will. It seems the opposite of love. The world's sexual narrative, which we're teaching our kids, where sex is for self-fulfillment and self-realisation, is lust, not love. Because it depersonalises and objectifies people and makes them a need for my benefit. C.S. Lewis, in his great book, The Four Loves, says this, Sexual desire, without eros, love, wants it, the thing in itself. Eros wants the beloved. We use a most unfortunate idiom when we say a lustful man wants a woman. Strictly speaking, a woman is just what he does not want. He wants a pleasure for which a woman happens to be the necessary piece of apparatus. How much he cares about the woman, as much may be gauged by her attitude to her five minutes after sex. Eros makes a man really want, not a woman, but one particular woman. The world's view cannot deliver the sex and intimacy you want. That's why 
viewing that porn image this afternoon or swiping through Instagram never satisfies. It's why a one-night stand never satisfies. It's why erotic fiction never satisfies. Actually, let's go further. Lust leads to sexual abuse. Lust leads to rape. Lust leads to prostitution. Lust leads to anything which uses someone for my benefit. And God's design for sex is much better. It is beautiful in a loving relationship. She is never a thing. She and he are image bearers of God whom you love. Well, point two, sex in God's design is marital. Look at verse nine. You have captured my heart, my sister, my bride. As the couples experience sexual intimacy in this chapter, he calls her his bride six times. It's the only time in the whole book he uses that word bride. Because what the Song of Songs is saying is sex and marriage, they go together. And actually, the, the song paints the picture so beautifully, doesn't it? Look at verse 12. My sister, my bride, you're a locked garden. A locked garden, a sealed spring. Now, there's not a lot of locked gardens in Orange, but locked gardens are quite popular around the world. And what happens is, is um, different people, they own the bit of land and the garden in it, and there's a fence around it. And you and me, plebs, we get to walk past, stick our nose through the gate and look at it, but we can't go in. The woman is a locked garden. That may be her virginity or her body, but once she is married, she invites her husband in. Look at verse 16. Awaken, north wind. Come, south wind. Blow on my garden and spread the fragrance of its spices. Let my love come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. Notice the mutuality. Her body is always her garden. But then it becomes his garden. In God's design, sex is self-giving, not self-gratification. Now, this does not mean that the wife's body belongs to the husband or vice versa. No, it means that they, by choice, give themselves to the other for their joy. Such the opposite to worldly and Christian coercive sex, where you just think they belong to you. Also notice the word awake there. See it there? The woman used the word when she was talking to her girlfriends in chapter 3. And to her girlfriends who are single, she says, don't awaken love until the appropriate time. You need to wait for this. And the girlfriends have one answer. Question, when? When? In chapter 4, she tells them when. 4.16, awake, north wind. Now is the time for love and sexual intimacy in the covenant of marriage. Okay, why if it's so good, is it reserved for marriage? That's a really important question, isn't it? Because the world that we live in constantly says monogamy is boring and old-fashioned. And actually, the world says 
it's harmful to deny anyone in Orange and Beyond their sexual desire, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual. So if you stop them experiencing desire, you're, you're evil. So God's good design, it feels like it's on the wrong side of history. Well, the song actually gives us a clue when it describes the woman as a garden. It was exotic, wasn't it? Did you imagine all those spices and plants? Well, actually, there's no garden in the world that contains the diversity of these sort of plants. It's, an Im it's impossible, right? Because what the song is doing is it's transporting us back to the perfect garden, the Garden of Eden, where marriage and sex were designed. And so in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, God says this, This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. In God's design for marriage, two different humans, not two men, not two women, two different beings become one flesh. And that is more than physical. What's happening in godly marriage is there is a union at the core of their being. They go from being two to becoming one. And what sex does is it establishes that union, marriage night, expresses it through the marriage and strengthens it. And sex is very good at it. It operates like superglue to bind people together. That's why when a couple date and break up, it is painful and very painful. But if you add sex to that, it becomes even more painful because the glue is at work. In God's design, sex communicates, I love you and I'm willing to commit my entire life to you. Sex in the Bible is super consensual. It's actually only for those who are willing to commit their whole lives to someone else. And sex without marriage communicates something with your body that you're not saying with the rest of your life. And so point three, sex in God's design points beyond itself. I think the greatest failure of the world's view of sex is that it takes a good thing and makes it the ultimate thing. You see, sex will never lead to the desired intimacy you want this morning. It won't. Because if you want it for self-fulfillment, you'll be disappointed. We know that because that's what the Samaritan woman at the well did after five husbands. And ask anyone in this room who has been overly sexually active. They're not sitting here very content this morning. It's not a failure of sex. It's a failure to understand how sex and marriage fit into creation. Because I'll tell you the truth, sex is an Everest. Marriage is not Everest. The couple in Song of Songs, marriage and sex, they point beyond themselves to the ultimate relationship available to all people. You see, the Bible, it begins with a story in a garden, a love story of God and people. And the Bible story is people reject God and break his heart. And they trade their God for other lovers. 
But God in his grace pursues and pursues humans. God left heaven to find us. He entered history in his son Jesus. And God laid down his life for his lovers. And then God, when you become a Christian, says, I'm going to put a ring on it. I'm going to commit myself to you forever. In all its beauty and commitment, marriage points beyond itself to the union of God and us, which was glued together as Jesus bled on a cross. That is the where the wedding began. And that relationship is eternal. That relationship is unspoiled. That relationship is never based on feelings. That relationship is the source of ultimate intimacy and fulfillment, whether you're divorced, single, married, same-sex attracted, young or old. It is for everyone. It's revolutionary, isn't it? Because to be truly human means you don't have to have sex. To be truly human means you don't have to be married. To be truly human is to be in a relationship with God who gave himself for you. Remember the question we began with? Is God's design for sex fundamentally good? And the answer is yes. But. There's a big but there, isn't there? Because there are some here at 10.45 this morning who are sitting in a profound sense of failure right now. Because they're reflecting on how far they've fallen short of God's design for sex. Their garden has not been kept locked up. There is lust in their minds or in their actions. Actually, for some at 10.45, sex has been imposed on them. Someone has broken through the gate and forced themselves into the garden. For others here, there have been Foolish decisions. Shame in this area is very strong. Some of you are thinking, if people knew what I have, actually, Jesus knows absolutely everything you've done. Jesus knows absolutely everything you've thought. He knows everything you've searched for online. And he is determined to let you into his garden. The gospel of Jesus brings great news to failures. You see, what is Christianity? It's God asking his son Jesus, will you take this man and that woman and that man and that teenager and that man and that woman, will you take them to be yours? Jesus says, yeah, I know what they've done, but absolutely I will. And then God asks you a question. Will you take Jesus to be your loving Lord? And the moment you say yes, and you take Jesus' hand, you are a virgin again. You are completely forgiven of every sexual sin. And united to him, he says, go and sin no more. Leave lust in your past and commit to God's good design. There'll be some in this room this morning who are in a state of rebellion. Can I say, if you're enjoying sex outside of marriage, you are fighting your maker. 
if you are enjoying foreplay outside of marriage, you're fighting your maker. If you are enjoying porn outside of marriage or in your marriage, you are fighting your maker. And you can expect no peace from God and you will have a restless heart. If you continue like this to the end of your life, you risk missing out on the kingdom of God. You cannot love self-fulfillment sex and God at the same time. So what God calls you today to do is to repent, is to turn back to him and ask for forgiveness. And if you do that, you will find true peace. There are others this morning sitting here who are feeling very, very frustrated. This word from God is too restrictive, only for heterosexual marriage. What if I never have sex? What about my same-sex attracted friends? What about a difficult marriage where there's no sex at all? Three things. If that is you, I want you to know that there is frustration in every relationship in the world. In every happy, smiling marriage at church at 1045, there is frustration. In every single person, there's frustration. In every teenager, there's frustration. Frustration is part of every relationship. Secondly, we also need to see that Jesus offers the satisfaction and intimacy we're all looking for. I guarantee you, having sex outside of God's design will not give you what you want. We need to take up his proposal and give ourselves fully to him with all aspects of our life. Thirdly, it is important to recognise that we as 1045 Church contribute to the frustration of single people, of widowed people, of people with same-sex attraction. And we do that by exalting human marriage so much that we communicate accidentally that intimacy is only found in marriage. Here's a quote from Christopher West. Intimacy is like hunger. If your only choice is between bad food and no food, you will choose bad food because you have to eat. If in the church the only alternative between no intimacy or unbiblical intimacy, we will go for unbiblical intimacy. You see his point? The person sitting next to you this morning, whether they're single or same-sex attracted or married or widowed, they are desiring intimacy. It's part of who they are as a God-made creation. And if ultimate intimacy is found in the marriage of Jesus and his church, then the church needs to be a place that offers intimacy for all. It needs to be a place where there is genuine love and genuine intimacy and genuine friendship for the single, the widowed, the same-sex attracted, for all. And if that is true, then at 10.45, waiting for marriage will not just be plausible but desirable because we're the bride of Christ. Saying I'm same-sex attracted but trusting God's good design will be plausible and desirable because we're living out the bride of Christ. Being committed to purity in marriage 
or singleness will be plausible and desirable because we're living out our identity as the bride of Christ. God's word's a very good word. It's the best word. And it is the best word to all people. Let me pray. Almighty and gracious God, creator of us, body, mind, soul, we thank you so much, Lord, that you love us far more than anyone else. We thank you for laying down your life for us. We thank you that you commit yourself to us. We thank you that we can live as your people, individually and corporately, as the bride of Christ. May we be people who are unashamedly positive and trusting 